Hey folks, this is Gabby Narana again with Faster Skier, and you are listening to Nordic Nation. In this episode, recorded on the ground in Pyeongchang, South Korea, you'll hear part two of our conversation with perhaps the busiest person at the Olympics, Tom Kelly, also known as TK. Kelly is the longtime vice president of communications of U.S. Ski and Snowboard. We interact with Tom as we cover the Nordic sport athletes here at the Games. Tom has been with U.S. Ski and Snowboard, or at least various forms of U.S. Ski and Snowboard, since 1986, and he'll be stepping down from his post a few months after the Games conclude. Again, this is a two-part interview. Part one explores the early years of Tom's career. Part two explores his more contemporary experiences, including this nug, how he came to be known as TK, and where his Hallmark hat came from. We'll begin the second part of our conversation with Tom discussing the good work of the Speedy Foundation. We'll post a link to that later in the story. Take someone like, do you have any questions? Oh, what happened to him? Yeah, what happened? Well, Speedy, well, why don't you... Me? Ask that question again. Well, what happened to Speedy? So uh, Speedy's an interesting story, and it's a topical story right now because of Nick Gepper's um, medal. And Nick, who won a uh, silver medal in slopestyle skiing here in Pyeongchang, uh, was a bronze medalist four years ago in Sochi in the same event, part of the U.S. medal sweep. And he battled depression after the games, and very much like Jared Speedy Peterson did most of his life. And uh Nick Gepper met Speedy just one time, and but but he knows his story. And Speedy just battled depression. He was up and down all the time. I mean, the highs were just amazing, but the lows were really deep. And Speedy eventually uh, had a bad weekend. Uh, he had been drinking, uh, led police on a high-speed chase uh, in Sun Valley, was arrested, and it just put him into a deeper depression. And a couple of days later, he took his life. And... It was, you know, for those of us who worked with Speedy, we knew that this was a possible outcome and we were probably ill-equipped to really understand how to deal with it. Today, the the whole discussion on depression is more open than it's been in the past. And listening to Nick Gepper talk to the media after his silver medal was, was really gratifying that he could stand on stage and literally talk to the world about the depression that he went through, how he successfully battled through it, and what his plan of attack is ahead. And, you know, it, it just, you know, athletes have, I think, to a lot of people, this great existence, uh, especially when you win. But there's, there's always another side to it. And, and that's what uh, we saw with Speedy, and we see it with Nick Epper now, and and uh, really happy that he seems to be on a really good path. But all of us need to engage in the discussion. We need to be able to recognize it and, and do something about it. The Speedy Foundation, which was formed by his friends and family after that, does great work in the field of suicide prevention. And I urge people who are listening to this podcast to go check out the Speedy Foundation. It is just valuable resources, signs to look for, and resources to help people who are who have that situation um yeah that's good work actually yeah and i say i mean this is a total aside one of the things i see is yeah the highs are so high and the lows just for your general athlete in especially in particular these individual sports are deep mm-hmm. you know and how do you help uh mitigate the lows yeah and you know and and 
I think particularly looking at this cross-country team we have here, particularly the women, um, there's a lot of expectations on these athletes coming here. You know, this is the Olympics. We are going to win that medal. And it's easy for all of us in the cross-country community to talk about that and to kind of be joyous coming here that we're going to win this medal. Jesse's going to win this medal. The team's going to win a medal in the relay. But at the end of the day, it falls onto the shoulders of these athletes. And what I like about the women's team is their ability to rise above that and, and to you know, be joyed by what they accomplish. If you look at Jesse Diggins at this point in the games, and we still have a few more events to come, she has a fifth, a fifth, and a sixth so far. Uh, and that's quite an amazing accomplishment. Uh, for, actually, no, she has just five, 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 six. Yeah, exactly. So she has three top six finishes, four top six finishes right now. That's amazing. And you know, we're in the hunt. We're in the hunt every race. We had three in the top 12. We had three women in the top 12 the other day. Uh, this has never happened in the history of sports. So I know that all of us, you know, if you're a cross country fan listening to this podcast, you know, you're thinking, man, I, I wish we would have gotten that medal. But just think about how your team competed at these Olympics. Okay. So here's a question. Okay. Having to do with, and we've talked a lot about this and this is like, and this started maybe back in Lottie last year when Gabby and I were chatting. And, you know, there's buzz. I mean, you guys put out buzz. We put out buzz. Everyone wants to get excited about a medal. The team, yeah. I mean, it's there's a lot of talk. And so then you start looking at the start list, and you're like, oh, my gosh. Wow. You, you know, you kind of forget that there's all of these, you know, Finland, Sweden, uh, Russia, Norway, and they're loaded. And you think, oh, well, okay, a fourth, a fifth is solid. You know, anything can happen on any given day, but it's a stack field. So that said, what have you learned about sort of balancing, especially like in an event like the Olympics, where you have non-traditional ski media here that can really help promote the sport? And, and they're very interested in like, what's the medal story? Um, balancing that with, okay, expe realistic expectations and also being celebrating the accomplishment of a fifth place. It's really hard. It's, it's a really insightful question because on one hand, you, you, you want to promote the sport. You want to use the Olympics as a platform that it is and, and gain some exposure for your sport and for the athletes. But doing that definitely has a tail to it. And... I th I'm sure that that's something that 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 will evaluate. Um, but athletically, what happens at the Olympics is every one of the great athletes in the world just rises up to a new level, you know. And all of us know that Charlotte Kala is one of the greatest skiers of our time in cross country. But what we saw with her second leg in the relay was out of sight. And you know, you have to think of okay. We're really pretty good too, you know. Sadie and and Sophie and Jesse and Keegan uh, and others, we're pretty good. But how do you get up to that next level at the Olympics? You see it in every event. I was at men's aerials the other night. It was astounding to me the level of jumping, and they're nailing all these jumps. Looking at slope style, 
this, you know, getting a, on a hundred on a hundred point base, getting a ninety five in the first run, and then everybody having to chase that and hucking stuff they've never never done before. It's the Olympics, man, and everything's at a much much higher level. And the the fact that we've competed as effectively as we have is really gratifying. We got to figure out that next level now. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like I, I, because I had to write not had to, but we kind of sit there like, we kind of swap back and forth. So I wrote the woman's story for the relay, the US women's story. You wrote the US and Canadian men's story for the, the men's relay. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and so I'm like, okay, well, how do I, yeah, how do I tell this in a mindful way that's telling the, the story I saw, but also in the context of, like you were saying, everybody rises to the occasion here. It's not just the US that's showing up to kill it, it's Kala and her crew and Bjorgen and her, her, her group. And, you know, you can look at, and, and I know that it was really hard to peg the, the Russian team in the relay. There were a few of them, few of the names who'd been at U23s at Soldier Hollow last year, but that was the real unknown and they really performed well. Uh, but then you look at the Finnish team, and you know you, you know that Krista Parmakoski is going to be strong against Jesse in the anchor leg. But you look at and you look at some of the others, and you know, you, well, maybe Rapinen isn't going to be that strong. But at the end of the day, everybody rises up, and and you know, I'd submit that everybody on our team rose up yeah, there yeah, too. Yeah. And you know, we just weren't quite as fast as them, but still, we were we were fifth in the yeah. Olympic relay, and it was an amazing. It was a it was a pretty awesome race. Um, okay. So I, I kind of want to just go back a little bit is an, a non-cross-country question. So someone like Lindsey Vaughn, um, who has her own sort of media presence, and she, you know, every non-traditional media outlet taps into her, you know, 12 months a year, not necessarily in the winter months. Um, how much coordination is there between your entity and what I imagine is her kind of media entity? We, we interface uh, pretty effectively, but it's generally around events. She, she's creating her own path, and she's, she's chosen to invest in an outside entertainment-oriented PR agency that specializes in dealing with top athletes and top entertainers to basically you know, create a public image for her, and that's what they do. We're not so involved in that. We're involved with her when she's competing and at events, and there we interface with with her team, um, but she's chosen to invest really an enormous amount of money in that, and she's gotten the payback because she is a she's a cultural icon. Um, someone asked me, someone from Slovenia, a journalist from Slovenia, asked me after her press conference uh, before the games. He said, "Do people know who she is in the United States?" And I said, "Absolutely." I said, "She is, she is absolutely." in the same league as any of the top female sports stars in America. So he immediately went to the Williams sisters and I said, absolutely. She is on par with them. And I would submit that she probably is more well-known. Their sport, the sport of tennis is more broadly known in America. But Lindsey Vaughn, through the investment she's made in her own image PR, she's as notable a sports figure worldwide as as anyone. She's right in the Roger Federer territory uh, and others who are truly global sports stars. 
But she's given up a lot to, to get to that point in terms of her investment of time and energy towards that end. And she's had to also maintain her athletic presence, which she has. It's pretty admirable that at, at her age now, now up into the mid-30s, oh, wow. that she's still as competitive as she is and, and an absolute uh, contender uh, in the speed events now here at the Olympics. Okay, so um, going back to cross country. How are we doing? We're doing, doing right? great. Yeah, we're doing great. Piabi, how are you? I'm doing. I'm enjoying my butter tea. I know. <laughs> tea is good. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about, I mean, cross country is not alpine skiing in terms of media exposure. Um, so something like take faster skier, something that we've done where you're like, oh, my God, faster skier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anything? <laughs> no, I mean, faster skier plays a really vital role in the cross-country community. You know, it's, it's interesting, and this is true with any of our sports, that you have the, 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 the kind of endemic fan audience that's just passionately involved in the sport and knows the sport and is knowledgeable. And then you have the general public and you really need to strike a balance with both. We have the same thing on the Alpine side. We have ski racing Dot com that serves the, the real hardcore fans. And then we have all the other media that we deal with that, that deals with the, the kind of broader fans. And you have to really strike a balance on that because the, uh, ultimately the, the future of the sport is being managed within the community itself. So media like Faster Skier and, and others who are in the cross-country realm. And by the way, there's more media outlets serving cross-country than there are Alpine. Uh, so you have, you know, you have you have three or four media outlets in, in America that are, are serving the sport of cross-country. Uh, you don't have that in Alpine so much. Uh, so it is it is really important uh, that that there's uh, a media outlet that's knowledgeable on the sport and can report the insights on what happened really athletically detailed. The rest of the media are going to be more superficial on that and really look at the personality of the athletes and kind of a broad brush at what happened in the particular event. So it's important to have that blend. So someone like Jesse, who, you know, for a long time, Keegan was kind of the biggest name in U.S., cross-country skiing I think she won three sprint globes um and Jesse has sort of taken over that mantle in terms of exposure uh do you guys help her you know especially like in the run-up to the Olympics do you help her as an entity get her name out there or is that something that's like an independent uh play on her part especially with the cross-country team we played a fairly big role in that uh we lobbied for our athletes at the big NBC West Hollywood shoot uh, uh, in April to make sure that we had our top athletes there. Um, we have obviously a very direct connection to the leadership at NBC. So we we really pushed Jesse as one of its stars of the games, one of its faces of the game. So if you if you look at the NBC promotions coming into the games, the athletes that were most prominently featured were Michaela Schifrin, Lindsey Vaughn, Sean White, Chloe Kim, Gus Kenworthy, Jesse Diggins. And 
you know, there's never been a cross-country skier in that mix before, and it was pretty cool. The other thing that's cool for me is we have a new chief commercial officer. He's the guy who does all of our sponsorships, and he came to us with a great deal of experience in America's Cup uh, sailing um, within uh, international soccer, and he plays at the highest level of sports marketing worldwide. And he didn't come in with an alpine paradigm. He came in with a sport paradigm and things that excite him are people like Jesse Diggins. He is excited about people like Ashley Caldwell in freestyle. He's excited about ski jumping. And these are things that have never been on the plate of the top marketing person before. And they're all very much on his plate. And and he's enjoyed working with these different sports. Uh, he didn't come in with that traditional Alpine mindset that we've seen so much in the past. And for someone like me, it's been really gratifying to see that, that we truly are a multi-sport organization and he sees the marketing value of it. So this is your your official, well, maybe not your last Olympics. No, it won't be my last Olympics. It will be my last Olympics in this role. I am leaving my role in June, and that's a decision I made four years ago. Uh, so we've had four years to do this transition. Um, I, I will be handing over the reins after the Olympics and then stay on to help with the transition. Uh, but my, my motivation is I want to stay in Olympic sports, so I want to work for uh, other Olympic sports organizations. We'll see what that means. Uh, I'm sure you'll still see me at the Olympics, but just not in the in the same role. I am passionate about the Olympics, and I want to still uh, spend my time working. Uh, I just don't want to go to the office anymore, and I want to do it in a different way and try to use my knowledge uh, expand my public speaking. I do a series I call Behind the Gold, where I speak to corporate groups and tell them stories uh, like we've been talking about here, uh, about the amazing success of these athletes and the stories of what makes them great. Uh, you know, I, I love telling stories like of Jesse Diggins and how she talks about team. And you guys know this because every time she comes into the mix zone, she talks about team. Every time she sends you an email after the race with her quotes, she talks about team. And I love talking about team. And I said, this is what our top athlete in cross country says about team. I like talking about failure. And when I talk about failure, I talk about athletes like uh, Kelly Clark and snowboarding and what she went through in Sochi four years ago where she fell in every single training run. She fell in her first comp run and eventually when all the chips were on the line in her last run, she she hit it and she took a bronze medal. So there's great stories like that to tell and I, I, I love doing that storytelling and I'd like to spend the uh, next stage of my career doing that. And uh, But still skiing is at my roots and I'll find a way to stay involved in skiing as well. Okay. And have you always been TK? You know, here's an interesting story about TK. Um, so I had always used it and I would sign things with it. And it was pretty much a common uh, nickname that goes back probably to college. I couldn't trace the origins, but <clears throat> it, it has some pretty deep roots. So about 20 or 25 years ago, I decided one day to do a psychological experiment. And I decided to stop using it. And since that day, I have never used it one time. Really? Yet, it has transcended generations, and people still refer to me as TK, and I respond to TK 
but I have not used it myself in 25 years. How do you sign off on an email? Tom. Okay. And and honestly, I, I it's totally fine. And I've thought about, well, okay, I've proved my point. Um, I should go back to using it, and I probably will. But I, I just decided on a lark one day to just see, I wonder what would happen if I stopped using it. What does that say about people? It, you know, it, it actually, it's power of brand, I guess. It's power of my TK brand. Um, so when I was doing a, um, I had my designer, Katie Perhai, was doing a logo for me for Tom Kelly Communications. I asked her, I said, you know, uh, and I actually looked at doing TK Communications, but I couldn't get the domain names. So I did ask her, I said, give me some like TK icons. So she did this wonderful Tom Kelly Communications logo, but she gave me these little kind of quote bubbles with the letters TK in there. So I'm, I'm actually, as I move forward, you'll probably see that on my business card. So I'll go back to using it. But for all of those out there who have called me TK, it's totally cool. I just haven't been doing it for a while myself. So the other iconic, do I, do you, you good? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, okay, TK. Yeah, I'm yeah, it rolls off the tongue. Yeah. So the other piece that you know it's sort of iconic is the hat. Yeah, there's the hat. So tell me about the hat. So I've always been a hat guy, and I've just put my hat on. It's not like a traditional little ski tube. No, and even going back when I was a kid, I I used to wear baseball caps all the time, and. I have to think back on this because it's it's a good question. And I, I think the origins are my wife, who's been in the uh, clothing retail business, outdoor clothing retail business for many years, she worked for a company, um, Elon Blanc, which was a distributor of hats. And they would distribute these um, kind of waterproof, crushable hats that were really good for travel because you could smash them and not much would happen to them. So before every big trip, and this would go back to the kind of late 80s, early 90s, before every big trip, her boss would give me a hat. And that would be my like Olympic hat. And that's when I started wearing kind of the more cowboy hat like look. And then in uh, the year 2000, we were attending an International Ski Federation Congress in Melbourne, Australia. And we were up in Sydney and we were uh, folks who've been to Sydney. We were in the on the rocks uh, area in Sydney, and we just went into this hat shop, and they had a bunch of Okubra hats, which is a very notable Australian brand. And I picked out this Okubra hat that I really liked, and I started wearing it in the year two thousand. And then a year ago, in February of twenty seventeen, uh, that hat at that point um, would have been seventeen years old. Um, so it was getting pretty old, and my wife replaced it. And she actually got a hold of the same shop in Sydney. She could have probably gotten this on Amazon Prime, but she went to the same hat shop and got exactly the, the same hat. So Is that the hat? This is the hat. So this is an, an Akubra. It, does say, it says made in Australia. Made in Australia. Size 58. It's got crocodile. That's yeah, this is that's real a croc crocodile. What do you call that piece? <laughs> um, it's just a hat band. And you know these are really easy to clean. I was uh, I was in a uh, club in Solden, Austria, this October, and there was a second floor of this club, and there was like a lot of beer. When you say club, we're talking it's like a bar. A, 
um, golf club or uh, no, it wasn't a golf club for sure. So I, I was with some of our staff and it's Austria. So we were out at a bar and, and having a good time. And, and, but there was a lot of beer that was coming off the second floor that stained the hat, but it just, it cleaned up really nicely. Uh, but I, the hats become distinctive for me. And again, going back to my logo designer, she was trying to convince me of doing a logo with the hat in it. And I said, I don't want a hat in the logo, but again, give me some little icon or bug. So she did that too. But the, the hat's iconic for me. And I've taken the lead from my good friend, Billy Kidd from Steamboat Springs, who's a 1964 Olympic silver medalist in slalom. And people know Billy from Steamboat from wearing his hat. He always wears his hat everywhere, you know, at dinner and so forth. And my wife sometimes says, you can't wear the hat at dinner. And I say, well, Billy Kidd does. And so another fascinating experiment. In the, in some, somewhere along the line in the first week or 10 days here in Pyeongchang, I finally succumbed to the cold. And I said, I can't wear the hat anymore. The hat's cold, you know, and, and, you, and with the hat, you can't wear a hood. So I decided one day to not wear the hat. And I got so much grief from people. I went into the, we've done 22 press conferences now here, and we've gotten to know the volunteers, not so much by name, but we know each other's faces. And I went in one day, one day and did a press conference. I didn't have the hat on. And one of the young girls who's a volunteer, she was seated and she looks up to me and she said, where is your hat? And I said, oh, geez, thanks for saying that. But I said, I decided not to wear it because it's been cold outside. Uh, so at that point, I decided to continue to wear the hat. And I may leave it in the press room when I go out for events, but I'm wearing the hat. Here's the, you know, they, they now it took them a week of the, I guess it would be like subarctic temperatures here. And now they have sort of hand, big hand warmers. Have you seen those at each little VMC? I, I have, and that was really interesting. I'm anti-hand warmers, but I have seen them. Because of the environmental impact? It's kind of yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm anti-hand warmers because people don't manage them properly. You know, hand warmers are fine, but when you're done with them, throw them away. Don't throw them in the forest. Well, I was thinking you could pop one on the top of your head and put the hat on. You could. Um, by the way, another hat story. Uh, somebody told me when I was a kid, Wearing a baseball cap, they say, you know, if we're a hat all the time, your hair won't grow, so you're going to be bald. So I don't know. I guess that that is true. I have to say that's probably true. Yeah, it looks good that you carry it. Well, I I hope so. Uh, but but the hat the hat's fun. It's it's iconic, and you, you know they they it's it's interesting because they they have a no hat policy at press conferences here. You can't wear hats, and so the athletes athletes like can't and. So I've kind of felt a little bit bad being up at the podium at a press conference wearing a hat when the athletes aren't allowed to wear hats, but no one's really called me out on that yet. Um, and we've actually gotten to the point, too, where athletes who are wearing a generic U.S. hat, we've kind of let that one go. But uh, early on, we said no hats of any kind. It's easier to do that because you can't wear commercial markings up there. So it's just easier to say no hats rather than saying no Red Bull hats or something like that. Gotcha. But it could be like a Nike hat. Well, it's not supposed to be any hat, but we've kind of started allowing, like we let Nick Gepper wear his Team USA Nike hat up there. Um, you know, some of it is is part of their look too, but it's just the commercial marketing thing is delicate. Anything else we didn't ask you that you're like, we should we should ask you or you should tell us? Yeah, you know, we should, you know, we should, uh, uh, actually, that's always a dangerous question, but we should talk about my, my, my family. Um, so yeah. I, I, um, 
my, I met my wife, Carol Dew, uh, on my very first day at work at Telmark. I think it was November 27th, 1977. And she, I, you know, here I am, I'm saying it's the first time I've ever had like a, a job where I was in charge of something. I didn't even know what to do. And I sat down at my desk and somebody had told me you should hire someone to help you. And I said, I didn't even know what that meant. And I'm sitting there thinking, huh, I need to hire someone. Somebody told me I need to hire someone. And this woman walks in my door and she says, I'm Carol Dew and I'm a friend of the boss's wife. And uh, uh, I was told that I should come and work for you. And I said, great, uh, sit there. And I didn't know what to have her do. And I think she quit a couple of weeks later, but never really left. And so that's how we met. And I know that uh, there now are standards and things that you're not supposed to have relationships in the workplace. But I mean, that was 40 years ago, and it worked out well for us. But she had uh, four children. And uh, so I essentially, you know, started to, we started seeing each other a couple years later. And, you know, her kids at that point were probably, I don't know, six to 16, something like that. So, so I ended up in a relationship with someone who had a family. So, you know, those were our kids. And, um, I actually had, uh, I think that I had a grandson. I think our grandson, Zach was born when I was probably only late thirties. So we have 10 grandchildren now and they're scattered around the country. And, um, the four kids are scattered around as well. We have a couple of the grandkids. Uh, uh, Zach, who lives right down the street from us, is 26 right now. And Hannah is a hairstylist in Salt Lake City. And uh, we see them quite frequently. And we get back to Wisconsin to visit the others. We've got our grandkids up in uh, northern Wisconsin and uh, some in other places in Wisconsin and down in Kansas City. So uh, they, all love, they all love coming out to, um, to ski. Um, and, it's, and it's fun to have them out. So... You asked that question, Gabby. Give us an idea of, a, of your schedule at this type of Man, event. I got to look at it and see. Um, this is a light day. I, you know, I got to say, at this Olympics, I've gotten more sleep at this Olympics than any other, and I'm getting about five and a half hours a night, which actually for me is is way adequate. Um, but it's a slightly sliding schedule. At home, I usually go to bed at 10.30 or so, maybe 11, and then I'll be up at 5, 5.30, and that's my home schedule, and I love that. Uh, here, it's more to bed at one thirty or 2, and then get up. I've been getting up at 7 o'clock every morning, which is a little bit late for me, but it, it works out just great. At the Olympics, very seldom do you have like super early morning schedules, but we map it out. We do a, I do a grid called Managing Victory, and this was something that I coined – um, 20 plus years ago at the 94 Olympics in Lillehammer, we had pretty good athletic success. Tommy Moe won the gold medal in the downhill on day one. Diane Roth won a gold medal in the Super G, Peekaboo Street, silver in the downhill and so forth. And we did a really good job with media there at the games, but we didn't do anything afterwards. So I created this program called Managing Victory, which was a more systematic approach for athletes to get them onto the late night talk shows back in America and other things. And we put that in place in 1998. And that was when Peekaboo won the Super G gold, which was an amazing day. We won three of the four gold medals in freestyle. So we took those athletes and some of them even gave up World Cup races the next week to come back to America and get on the TV shows, to get on David Letterman and Jay Leno and others. And it was a huge success. So now what we do is going into every Olympics, 
we map out literally a minute-by-minute plan for every single event. So this is when the event ends. This is how long it will take in the mix zone, how long the press conference will be, how long the doping will be, how long the transport is. Should we go to the main press center? Should we go to NBC? Go to the medals, go down to the Today Show. So we map every minute of that out. So right now when there's a, a medal, and let's let's use Sean White as an example. So Sean White is is winning a medal. We have a team back at the office at the main press center looking at the managing victory flow. So the press officer in the venue doesn't have to worry about that at all. They just manage the athlete in the venue. Somebody behind the scenes is working on, okay, here's the plan. Here's how we might have to modify it because of any delays and so forth. And and then we just simply come up with that plan. We send it to the press officer. They get in a car and they execute that plan. Uh, so my job is more the behind the scenes on it because um, we have other press officers who are in the trenches with the teams. So I'll just work behind the scenes with USOC and NBC. We map that out and you know send the athletes on on their way. Um, we'll brief the athletes uh, in the car. Uh, you know, let them know about any particular issues. Uh, uh, let them know what the schedule is. Also try to keep them entertained and keep them motivated because all of a sudden all this stuff is being thrown at them. And, you know, you get really concerned, you know, how are we impacting the athlete? We try to work in a victory celebration somewhere along the line. So we figure out how can we intersect the path of the athlete with all of our fans and donors who are here. And we've had a high success rate at that. What we, what we try to do is that within, let's say, three to four hours after every medal, that our donors who are here, that they have an audience with the athlete. And we've been pretty true to that. And you can imagine if, you know, what it's like if, you know, your wife and your kids who are here and, and you've, you know, made this donation to help the athletes and you're able to, you know, do a picture with Sean White or Jamie Anderson uh, or one of these great medalists. Uh, it's, it has huge impact. So, my schedule is usually pretty uh, light in the mornings, and then as the events begin, it's pretty it heats up pretty much behind the scenes, and it goes late. I'm also serving as the ski jumping press officer here. Those events start at 9.30 at night, so it goes late. Most of the ski jumps are going out to about midnight, uh, so that's getting pretty late. Uh, that's 10 o'clock in the morning Eastern time, so we're working on our daily newsletter and other things, so the evenings have generally been pretty intense. Uh, I'm also savvy enough now that I know how to take breaks. I had one situation the other day. I looked at the schedule. And I said, you know, i got a six-hour break. I'm just going to go home. And I went home from 2 o'clock to 8 o'clock into the condo, and I did nothing. I, you know, I watched some American television shows that I like and did some reading and just kind of chilled. Um, I didn't used to do that, but I, I just make sure I do that now. I make sure I exercise every day um, and don't go out too late at night. Uh, uh, and you just got to watch those things. Uh, you hear that, Gabby? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's hard to manage that sometime, but you, you just really you just really have to because uh, you got to be ready to go every day. Cool. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. Thanks. Hey, it's a, it's a pleasure. Love what you do at Faster Skier, and you're the voice of our sport, and um, keep it up. Appreciate it. Thank you. thank you. All right. I think we're good. Wow. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to part two of the Tom Kelly interview.